Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, a Critical Role rewatch podcast. I am Sinsaku, also known as John, and I'm at Johnny Bates on Twitter. I'm the host and executive producer here. And with me today is Jack. Hey, this is Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hi, this is Jeremy. I'm JThomas411Mania. And today we're talking about Critical Role Episode 6, Breaching the Emberhold, aired on uh, April 14th, April 16th, 2015, yes. mm-hmm. um, and starring Orion Akaba as Tiberius, Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talazin Jaffe as Percy, Ashley Johnson as Pike, Liam O'Brien as Vaxel Dunn, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlon, Travis Willington as Grog, and as always, Matthew Mercer as Dungeon Master. Um, and at the start of this show, we were treated to something slightly different. Uh, whereas this this week, we got to see Pike's background, the extensive things that we talked about in the first episode. <clears throat> because it's the first time we've seen Pike's, we'll go ahead and go through it. Pike grew up in the outskirts of town near the Bramblewood. Her ancestors were a family of deep gnomes with quite an unfavorable reputation. Thievery, destruction, and trickery left them with the curse of the last name of Trickfoot. I will say that a last name isn't really a curse. So much yeah, unless you're trying to avoid the reputation doctor. and every time you have to apply for a job, they're like, huh, why are you called Trickfoot? Why don't you just change your name? Anyways, <laughs> Siren Ray, the goddess of healing and redemption, had other plans for Pike's great-great-grandfather Wilhand, who left his family at a young age after a dream, a dream that changed the course of the Trickfoot family. Wilhand devoted his life to Siren Ray and pledged from then on that he and his family would live a life of service and devotion. As a child, Pike seemed to have an affinity to heal, whether it was whether it was animals, peoples, or even flowers. She felt she had a purpose in making things whole that had once been broken. She studied and learned the ways to heal through divine magic. She lived a peaceful life, quiet and simple, until one day, Wilhelm was captured and almost killed by a group of Goliath barbarians. One of the Goliaths took a stand against the murder of the innocent gnome, and he himself was beaten, bloodied, and left for dead, abandoned by his herd. Wilhand went to Pike for help. She prayed and healed the barbarian as best she could, bringing him back to life. When he awoke, she discovered his name was Grog Strongjaw. After that, they were the best of friends, a rather unlikely pair. Little did she know that in a few years' time, Grog would soon return the favor and bring her back from the clutches of death. After being killed in battle, Pike felt angry. She wanted to be stronger so that it would never happen again. She spent four months at sea training with the men and women aboard a ship called the Broken Howl. Gripping her holy symbol in one hand and her morning star in the other, this time, Pike is ready. For what we don't know, uh, but that is that's Pike's intro. What do you guys think of that one? So this one is interesting because I may be wrong here, but I feel like this is, with the exception of Grogs, uh, and we don't know whether that was written into backstory or what. This is the first one that directly references points that were pre-stream, um, specifically her death. Yeah. yeah. And so it has a little bit more well, development because of that. Yeah. There's yeah. Some some things that are referenced in other backstories could potentially have been role played out. Yes. But, um, but yeah, this one has this one references something that we know confirmed is yes. pre stream. Mm-hmm. Which isn't part of that their game, but yeah, which isn't that big of a thing from the way that we just we're looking at this show in terms of narrative and and things like that but it's an interesting well, point and i guess in terms of it actually does where have her a, development it, or 
depicting sort of the origin story in terms of how far along the development is. It's interesting in that respect. Narratively. Well, it's, it actually does. It, it's actually uh, also applicable because you know, we look at things from a narrative perspective, not just from a, from a you know, book writing, but also from like the experiences that we have in, in script writing and in television and in, and in film and such. Um, and this is a technique uh, used in television all the time to add a little bit of depth and uh, characterization to new characters or characters that are recently introduced where uh, they will come in and, you know, when they're introduced, they, they are given a connection to events that happened before the start of the series for certain characters. Mm-hmm. Um, this happens uh, all the time in serial dramas where a new yeah. character who's going to be a permanent cast member comes in and like, oh, you remember this thing that happened? Yeah, no, that's that was that's where we met. La 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 la. And it and it 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 you know it ends up referencing being referenced often enough that it's you know a relevant plot point that was never shown, it was never aired because it happened pre-airing of the series wherever the series began. Um, yeah. So that, that's actually a fairly common narrative uh, trope. I mean, I, I, I guess for me, I have the same problem with this one that I have with most of the intros, which is that there's just this. Um, it's this very and 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 it. To be fair, this is applicable to most of the players. It's it's this very uh, baby's first D and D character feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um. Which is, is applicable to because outside of Talzin and Pers- outside of Talzin and Orion, these were a lot of these people's first characters. Um, Liam had played as well. Um, Liam had played Talzin Liam and Liam. Yeah. Not, not, not. I was Orion. gonna say I don't think Orion had. I feel like I thought experience. I thought Orion had played. No, prior. no, this was know. his first game. Mm. Well, uh, but yeah, oh, no. Man. As far as as far as Talzin that goes, I mean, we've, right? We've got some. We've got some very good character hooks, I would say, though, in this backstory. Um, we have a an ancestor and relative. Uh, there's, you know, relatives are some of the the best character hooks because if you want to grab a character and bind them to a plot line, put their family at risk. You know, yeah, pretty simple there. Um, we have the. Uh, the 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 personality and characteristic hooks as well. You know, there's this blatantly stated desire to be stronger, desire to be ready, desire to be prepared. Um, so there's a character motivation already tied into this backstory as mm-hmm. well. Um, we have a slightly less stated but still evident uh, personality point uh, with the affinity for healing, which they use, I think, very well as a character motivation, not simply a sort of mechanical uh, ability where this is something, this is not only something she can do, but something that motivates and drives Pike as, as an although, individual. Although it is at odds with her desire to become stronger, which does provide a little bit of interesting it, dynamic. It can be at odds, depending on the situation. Um, you, know, because... you, don't typically, you don't typically envision an angry healer. No, but... An angry healer is something that you can have. Yeah. Look at, is, look at like House. Said, well, yeah. Well, that, that's what I mean. It makes it a, makes, right. that, that's yeah. why I was referencing it. It makes it an interesting right. character. Yeah. So, it's but a fun yeah, no. subversion of the <clears throat> Right, yeah. It's an excellent subversion of a, of a standard character trope um, where you can have them 
both of those motivations, either working in unison or conversely uh, being at odds, depending on the situation, which, you know, both gives internal and external conflict to a character. And as everybody knows, if you want good drama, you need good conflict. So, yeah, yeah no, I think as far as this one goes, once again, you know, there there is a very a level of, you know, basic D&D character-ness to the, a lot of the backstories. This one is one of the better ones, in my opinion, though, I think. My my only my only recurring gripe with Pikes is that you can change your name. <laughs> it's like, and that, I mean, but, but that that happens that happens with me with a lot of people who have yeah. Like, but okay, yeah, you can change your name, but it costs two hundred dollars. You have to go to a courthouse. You have to get a new social security card. It's a pain in the ass. That's why you don't change your name. They don't have fantasy social security cards. Uh, but, but but what I mean is that, like that that's an issue that I have with a lot with there there are many characters like that. It's like oh well my name is my shame. Well don't use it. Mm-hmm. Like especially in a fantasy setting, you never have to use that. You never have to use your real name ever again. Call yourself Strider and be done with it. Exactly. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no uh, and you can hearken back to Tolkien with that. It's like yeah, mm-hmm. Aragorn didn't like his name. So he went by Strider until his name became relevant again. Yes. Like, that that's what you do with that character. Rather mm-hmm. than going, oh, my name is a curse, it's Trickfoot, I don't like it, it means that we're tricky people. It's like, just don't use it. <laughs> but yep, but that, yeah, that's, no, that's, that's a valid that's point, a, I suppose. That's not a specific to Pike issue I have. That's a, that's a common character trope in fantasy writing issue mm-hmm. that I have. Um, yes. Because Pike is certainly not the only character in fantasy in fantasy writing that has ever had that thing, and will not be the last either. No. So, with that out of the way, episode six. When last we left our heroes, they had <coughs> coughed all the mic. Ah, go get me. yourself a drink. I have one right here. Okay. Um. When last we left our party, they had traveled uh, to the dwarven city of Craghammer at the behest of the Lure of Isauron to try to find Lady Kima of Vor. They spoke with uh, uh, Grace Spine to go into the mines underneath the town, which they did. Fought off some intellect devourers. Uh, Duragar found a found a uh, illithid named Cloroda. Uh, attacked a Duragar war camp. Killed an illithid. Cloroda uh, killed. Cloroda sucked the brain out of a Duragar, and everybody had a good laugh about it. Which was out of character. We had that discussion already. <laughs> Still weird. Um, still weird. Uh, they escaped, went in a big circle, found themselves back where they started, um, and in the lower chasm, which is where we pick back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vox Machina heads into the lower chasm uh, of of this underground, underdark area. They they also grabbed a trinket. Um, yes. <clears throat> the temperature of the air grows steadily warmer and warmer with a drier heat. Members of the party with thick armor feel sweat beads trickling down the side of their face, pressing further down with a hint of sulf- uh, the hint of sulfurous smell in the air, and become stronger and stronger uh, as they go deeper into the cavernous tunnel. The tunnel narrows and widens, but continues in a steady descent and doesn't veer off. Some of the small magma, uh, some some bits of magma trickle and pool around uh, and gather into magma cups and like little 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 small pools of magma. Um, after a slight hill in the tunnel, a larger portion of the left-hand side of the rock wall collapse, uh, is seen to have collapsed. A gargantuan pool of magma is steadily poured into the tunnel, covering basically half of it. And this is where we stop and talk to talk about verisimilitude. 
All right. So when you're writing a story, uh, especially one in a fantasy setting, you are able to suspend some of the laws of nature when you're using magic. Perfectly fine. We've seen it all before, you know. Um, But when you're talking about just basic mundane sort of things like geography, make sure you know what you're talking about. All right. If you've got a tunnel that's given as uh, like 30, 40 feet wide and you've got magma covering half of that. Um, that level of magma, even if it was on the surface, and just so everybody knows when it's on the surface, it's called lava, not magma. Um, but the heat there is going to be a problem. This is not something, I mean, Matt described it, and it's his world and his rules, but, you know, he's like, basically, edge around the side and you'll be fine. No, that is not how magma works. The temperature in there would be devastating. It would be lethal. You would not be able to get within 20 yards of that pool without having to at least make some level of protection for yourself and never mind walking past it on the other side. This should have been, in my opinion, if if you're going to put something like that in there, it has to be hazardous. It can't just be set dressing that they walk past. Um, now, a couple little, like, you know, three-inch trickles down the sides to set that sort of, hey, you're getting deep underground, that would have been one thing, but don't oversell the geography without considering the consequences of the geography. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, and that, that it doesn't bother me in fantasy settings that much, but I can definitely see where if you're, especially if you're writing, um, yeah. you don't want to set up a thing, a situation where, because it, it's funny, the things that will throw your readers or your viewers out of immersion and while you can accept on face, you know, people uh, throwing, throwing, you know, bolts of fire and lightning bolts and summoning ice storms, uh, because that's set as the rules of the world. <clears throat> when you also set that uh, things like lava work like they do in the real world, and then ignore what they do in the real world <clears throat> for sake of the story, it throws you off because you've already set these rules in place and then you ignore those rules right Um, and this would have been a perfect place for something like you know okay so now you guys have magical powers use them creatively to make this setting hazard less hazardous so that you can get past it Mm -hmm. that's what i was expecting to happen once this you know sort of situation was initially set up and then when they're just like okay and they have a little conversation about magic water bottles i'm like what was the point of all that then you know <laughs> you're setting up expectations and then just blowing past them without necessarily you know so you you have to be aware of that sort of sort of aspect and it's you know <clears throat> as a writer make sure you do your research yeah, because yeah. if the if this isn't a problem, then there's almost no reason for the magma to be there. And granted, I had four years of undergrad geography, so maybe this is just me. But still, <laughs> I mean, well, this is this is something that I think the level of sin that it is depends on what format you're working in. Mm-hmm. If you're working, if you're working in uh, a fiction, uh, literary terms i think it's much stronger than if you're working in like film or television uh-huh. um just off the top of my head i can think of six or seven movies new movies that i've seen in the last three months that have gone much stronger mm-hmm. into physics who needs it let's do rule of cool here um 
most, oh, yeah, most, no, not- right. most notably uh, the most recent Underworld film where, you know, you've got people in um, uh, fantasy armor, for lack of a better term, uh, in the Arctic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Doesn't work. And that's the kind of thing, if you're reading it, it would it would come off as ridiculous. But in, in a more cinematic setting, I think it works better. Because you're seeing it work. So yes. Right. I think I think for me the the most recent biggest offender was the second Hobbit movie where Thor and Oakenshield is literally riding a metal shield across a little river of molten metal and apparently <laughs> he's like his his nose is like 6 inches away from the thing and he's not even sweating. Um not not to mention the the thermal transfer that would happen from liquid metal to solid metal to his bare hands. Like he's not yeah. even wearing fucking gloves, you know? I mean it's like yeah. Yeah. So what we're saying is, know how <laughs> physics work if you've no already established them. Right. If you've already, especially if you've already established them as being real world physics, mm-hmm. but also um, know your audience too, and know who you know what know yep. what you're working for. Uh, yep. It's definitely not a big issue on this one for most people, except for people like Jack. But yep. <laughs> I mean, that's still a valid thing. If there's one yes. person on the internet that has this issue, there are ten people on the internet that have this issue, and it apply um, and it applies in a, in a general sense too, because. Yeah. In a setting like this, this is something where if you're not being, you know, if you're not being accurate to uh, how half elves are depicted or something like that, that's going against what your audience is is expecting um, and what your audience knows to be true or not. And that's where you start to be get serious problems. Okay. So, uh, again, we've reached this tunnel with magma covering half of it. Um, Scanlan asks Keyleth, you don't have any, you don't have any way of getting water, uh, to which Tiberius pipes up saying that he does. Uh, he pulls out an empty bottle. Uh, Vax asks Tiberius what the bottle does, and Tiberius explains, demonstrating with two bottles. Well, they're both empty, of course, but this one is an air bottle, and this one is a water bottle. He opens the air bottle, a small gust comes out. He then replaces the cap and swaps it to the other bottle. I don't know why he demonstrated that one was air when he needed water. Um... And oh, because Tiberius likes to show off his magic shit. Yes, I mean that, that, that's fair. That, that that's actually <laughs> right. that's a fair character point. Mm-hmm. Um, I have magic shit. I'm a short off. Um, and so he uh, pulled the other one and opened the cap and tipped the bottle over. And it was a never-ending, uh, never-ending bottle of water. Uh, and this is, <laughs> and I don't know, and I don't think that served any purpose other than showing that they had water. Nope, yeah. and uh, I, I'm sorry, Tiberius fans. I am not going to be kind this episode. Um, this is this is a this is a bad step for Tiberius in this episode. For me, for a lot of reasons, because um, it's him trying to prove how cool he is. Um, it is there. There's a line in here talking about showing off his magic shit. There is a line where he says. Why would I carry a non-magical item? That's ridiculous. This is complete self-aggrandizing Tiberius, um, a show-off, um, and a little condescending in this in in this thing, as if he needs to show them this is a bottle of air. Um, yeah, everything about that particular scene drove me nuts. Now, to be fair, from a narrative perspective. It's- Perfectly fine. It, it 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 
it encapsulates his character very simply. Yes. Although we already had his character established, it continues to further, you know, establish that this is who he is. He's it does. kind of it's a just, dick and he's obsessed with magic items. It's just whether that is a character that works in a group such as this and whether this is a character that people want to read. Mm-hmm. And in Jeremy's case, not a character he wants to read. I, 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 at this point, I don't mind Tiberius that much because I, I find that while yes, he's annoying at uh, he's an, an, a, a specific type of annoying character, he's also very different from the rest of the party. Um, and he provides a bit of a character foil to Vax and Vex and Scanlan and Grog. Um, like well, because, because you can pretty much estimate what Vax, Vex, Scanlan, and Grog are going to do in any situation. And then Tiberius is going to do something completely different. And that provides, that from both a narrative perspective and from an entertainment perspective, that provides something that's not stale. While it might be annoying, it's not stale. And I do yeah, appreciate no, that. The, the value of Tiberius at this stage in the story, I think you're right, is that of a unique and different point of view mm-hmm. and character motivation. You know, And whenever you have that, to to jump on Jeremy's train, there are going to be people that don't like it, you know. Um, and you have to, as a as a writer, you have to when you you see that somebody who diverges from sort of the uh, the 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 status quo progression of most of the characters in in the story, that is a, that is a calculated risk you're going to have to take if you're going to put in a weird alternate character. There are going to be people that don't like him. Um, in the Dragonlance books, I hate the Kender. Pretty much all of them, all the time. <laughs> um, you know, now I definitely see their value as narrative aspects. It's just whenever one of them is taking center stage, I'm always tempted to turn three or four pages at a time and be like, "Oh, okay, here's the people that actually make sense," uh, you know, uh, or things like that. Um, <clears throat> but that doesn't—I would say—that doesn't necessarily devalue them. No, for especially for those that do like them. Because I mean, yeah. Because and, that's you know, that's 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 the the sort of the 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 awesome aspect of the weird alternative character is that they are going to polarize your audience. There will be people mm-hmm. that absolutely love them. There will be people that absolutely hate them, and there will be those few people that are like, eh, whatever, you know. But well, but for the most provides, part, yeah. It also provides a very important narrative requirement of any story about people, which is somebody who can a show. A, like you said earlier, a different perspective, but B, also show drastic character growth or change, mm-hmm. or somebody who makes a mistake and pays for it. Um, mm-hmm. a, 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 a very good pop culture reference example for fantasy nerds uh, is uh, the war in the Warcraft series, Grom Hellscream. Yeah. Uh, in Warcraft 3, uh, Grom Hellscream is a orc who steadfastly refuses to change, where the other main orc, Thrall, is all about bringing this, bringing our species in, advancing us, progressing us towards a more intellectual and civilized uh, uh, society. Grom is all about holding us back. And 
he's intentionally a foil to Thrall, and he causes a lot of the conflict in that story because he's holding on to these old ways of thinking. And he ultimately pays the price for that in that he dies after being corrupted because he refuses to let go of this old way of thinking. But because he held on to that old way of thinking, he was able to use his failure as a boon to free his people and to motivate Thrall into becoming a better person. Yeah. Even though he himself was a bad, like a not, not bad written, but bad, like morally character. Mm hmm. Um, and a character that many people, would, you know, may find annoying because he, you know, he's that steadfast. I will never change. I'm always. This is the way things have been, and this is how they're always going to be. But he right. still provided a very important service to that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He is uh, the the analogy I would use is probably not quite as kind, and that's probably just because of my opinion on Tiberius. But I would use when I was looking at the character at this point. <clears throat> I was comparing him to from Walking Dead, Carl, and Coral? that carries yes, Coral. Coral. Uh, that carries a lot of connotations. But w- how I'm referring to this is actually in terms of a positive. Of at this point, I was looking at the character and realizing this was you know at this point what did, about a year ago, a little, little less than a year ago. When this episode um, yes. launched? No, this episode uh, no. Uh, two years ago. Two years or, ago. About, two yeah. years Almost ago. two wow. years ago. Yeah. Wow, you're right. No. Um, 2015. We're 2017 yeah. So now. about a year and a half ago was when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to re- remember that at that point, Carl had suffered for years as being the most irritating character on that show to the point that, that he's one of the most popular Walking Dead <clears throat> But at that point, had really started to progress as a character and grown and become interesting. That's where I. That's where I like to see these characters who start off as 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 irritating, as sort of sticking out as sore thumbs, um, uh, start to go because you do. You absolutely need one of these kinds of characters if you have a big ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 what makes those characters interesting for me is watching them grow because it 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 offers a different arc of character progression than what most of the other characters are going to have and that was what, sort of what I was hoping to see out of Tiberius at this point sometime yeah, down the yeah. line mm-hmm. okay uh <clears throat> so yeah that uh vex inspects the area of tracks and determines that the, it's uh, heavily trafficked by Durgar and other larger creatures, possibly ogres and trolls. She also notices several cave-ins caused by large burrowing creatures. Uh, Vox Machina continues to, stealth, or continues to stealth down the tunnel, and they reach a gargantuan chamber in which, is, which they determine to be the Ember Hold. Uh, there's a brief, uh, brief back and forth from Vex and Scanlan um, and Tiberius uh, regarding Scanlan's ability to pay attention. Um, and then Pike confirms that this is what she saw in her vision. This is also where the general told them Lady Kima of Vorb was being held. Uh, Caleb casts Pass Without a Trace, and Grog does his, uh, does the, you know, dust the dust of tracelessness behind them. Um, and the group moves forward with Vex and Vax in the lead, avoiding the main path. Grog and Trinket are telling jokes in the back of the group. Well, Grog is telling Trinket jokes in the back of the group. Um, 
And uh, Vex uses uh, her knowledge of the Underdark to mark the places where the train would be dangerous. Percy and Vax uh, halt the group as they hear the clanking of metal and low voices, at which point Vax and Vax, the twins, sneak up and find a roving patrol of about a dozen armed Duragar. They overhear them discussing one of Kavarn's pets uh, on the loose, and the band moves toward the tunnel Vox Machina just exited. Now, this is something that I appreciate especially about um, this sort of setting, because you'll see it uh, in a lot of like fantasy and sci-fi completely um, uh, neglected. You have your plucky group of adventurers who's, you know, attempting to assault or infiltrate an enemy stronghold. Uh, most enemy fortress and most military fortresses in a sort of vaguely medieval-esque setting will have towns, villages, or even cities grow up around and outside of them. Um, but so often it's, you know, the adventurers come up over the hill, they see the castle below them with the village and the town and blah, 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 blah. And then we smash cut to, okay, we're right at the walls of the fortress. Yep. Yeah. Whereas here it's, it's like, no, no, there's, there's a few miles, a village, villages that generally have people. Usually you don't have villages of just mega empty buildings unless you're a mining town in West Virginia. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and that's a progression that you have to be concerned about because if you're a bunch of unescorted warriors walking into an area around a military installation, you're gonna draw some attention unless you sneak through and manage to avoid literally the hundreds of people that live around. Yep. Um, and so I'm glad that Matt didn't just say, all right, make a stealth roll. Great. You're up at the Emberhold. You know, it's like, no, no, there's patrols. There are, there's terrain. There are things that you have to cover before you get to your goal. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of chomping on the verisimilitude, uh, train this entire episode but this <laughs> this one they they did really well, <laughs> well you know, you've got all this you've got all this backed up uh, uh bile from my gming style so i eh, well you know <laughs> <laughs> uh all right uh so they continue on for about an hour uh, until vex sees one of the obsidian spires is a different color than the rest most are a deep shiny black glass but this one's a bit of a dull crimson uh, Vex wants to head towards the Red Spire, so the twins take a peek and Scanlan accompanies them uh, while absentmindedly humming to himself. Um, <clears throat> another short bit of comedic dialogue. They make their way up to the spire and can now see that uh, the reason it's red is because it's completely coated in dried blood. Vax and Vex, which is a kind of reveal I love. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love Something innocuous in the distance when you get up close. Oh, that's a lot more macabre than I thought. Yes. You, both of you know I love that kind of a yeah. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. Um, and, and, and I, I it, because it's, it's real. Yeah. It, like it is your brain does one of two things. Your brain, when you see something that you don't know what it is, it either assumes it's fine or that it's the worst thing ever. And then when you get close to it, oftentimes it's the other way around. Um, like, you know, thinking back to my youth when I was, when, when I was wandering around my house because it was dark and I was going to get a drink or food or something at like one in the morning and the lights weren't on and the switch was at the other end of the hallway and you'd step out and you'd see the silhouette of something 
and you know it's not an axe murderer, but it looks like an axe murderer. <laughs> yep. No, and, I, think, and, I think most people can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's I have a the, fun story about that's, that. That's the way you're well, that's the way our brains work because yeah. we are survivors. We're, you know, either it's something harmless and we don't need to worry about it, or it's something deadly and we definitely need to worry about it. Yep. Um the and short so, version of this story, for the record, is if you have any of those cardboard cutouts of of, of pop culture figures, don't put it against the screen door uh, or the sliding glass door uh, directly opposite your your front door. So you go in, and before you turn on the lights, you see a figure standing there. <laughs> yeah, no, I can see why that would be a bad idea. Um, but yeah, so uh, it's you know it's it's. It's a good, it's it's a good like visceral, but real and relatable uh, mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, because as reveal. as you know, you're watching the characters, you know, have this new information related to them. You know, you can see on their faces, you know, and the way it's described and the way it's played. It's you know, hey, there's a lot of obsidian around. Most of it's black. This one's red, and so they're like, oh, okay, a weird rock. Let's go check it out. You know, and there's that that level of Huh, might be something interesting. Oh shit, it's blood. You know, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, what's more is it it was because of what they've encountered coming down here so far in terms of the the, the red veins that were in the wall that provide a little bit of lighting, that <laughs> even sort of eased the idea that it might be something bad, which made the shock even worse. Right. Yeah. So they investigate the area and discover that it's the remnants of a battle from almost a week ago. Durgar bodies were pulled apart by force or gnawed off. Uh, there are Durgar and Hook horror tracks, as well as a series of unfamiliar and erratic humanoid tracks. And they decide to head back to the group. Um, so so this, this whole thing was something that I really liked because um, this whole scene is something that could be considered, that, that could really be considered a sort of window dressing. Like in, in D&D, this is little more than obstacle avoidance. But here, uh, Matt's able to use it as a way to to sell Kavarn and and its various minions' threat level once again. And to point out, although this is something that is obviously regularly reinforced throughout, but that the Underdark isn't a safe place. Oh, yeah. um, no. And that they are not in, you know, it's not one of those situations where... It's an easy journey, even just to the to the way into the Emberhold. Besides, obviously, the creepy factor of like the creatures. I know that he references that there there's a weird pattern to how they're torn apart and things like that. That almost give it almost a ritualistic. <clears throat> that's never really followed up on because they don't continue on right. or, or wait wait around for it, but. It definitely adds a whole lot of mood there. Now, there's also a deeper layer, I feel, for, uh, you know, viewers with a a little maybe different background. But, you know, he talks about the parts being pulled apart by force, gnawed, and things like that. There's this very predatory aspect, even harking back to the conversation that the Durgar guards were having. Um, And, I mean, as they walk up, there is a crap ton of blood and there are body parts everywhere and that's what's left after a week 
And for the viewers that have been paying attention to the environment that they're traveling through, um, they've encountered just regular predators, scavengers, hunters, uh, just as much, if not more than the Duragar, the actual, you know, sort of civilized, yeah. mm-hmm. sapient, uh, sentient threats as well. So if this is what is left over after a week, how bad was it? right after the attack ended because oh, yeah. this is this is this is the aftermath when the 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 carrion eaters have already probably come through and you know filled up and taken off what they wanted when the scavengers have have already processed and picked it over and there's still body parts around this was a fucking massacre so i'm going to point out another bit of uh cognitive dissonance coming up okay uh, so we, we when we see this scene, there's definitely a sort of a, a, a unease about this scene and, and a not wanting to be here. Um, and, and in fact, Vax says, I don't think you want to tangle with this thing. And they leave. They get back to the party, and the first thing Vax does is toss Grog an arm he picked up off the battlefield. <laughs> you don't want to be here, so why do you bring a reminder with you? <laughs> yeah, no, a little bit of dissonance there, you know. I mean, from... and it, it was it was it was specifically for the joke, and and I get that right. there, yeah. there are things that people when you're playing D and D when you're being entertaining on the internet, you do things specifically for the joke. You you know, uh, you, you you say, for instance, run around screaming, "I'm a weave while playing a game called Neo, where you're playing a Englishman going to Japan dressing like a samurai. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> this when you when when you're looking at it from a narrative perspective this is very out of out of the blue like it doesn't why would you why would you be in a hurry to leave and take a reminder that doesn't make sense that that doesn't in at in, in any level now maybe if he was more fascinated than terrified then i could see him being able to come to grips with that and and have that morbid gallows and humor and bring it back just to try to freak people out right. um but in that case, he would have thrown it to Keyleth or Pike or someone else, not right. Grog, who then – we know what Grog's going to do. He's going to make a joke, which he did. Right. He's saying thank you for hand. Yeah. Um, no, there's, a, there's is... a number of reasons you could have had Vax's character bring the arm back. Um, you know, if if one of the – the left behind members of the group was the was actually the expert on the underdark instead of his sister who's literally 5 feet away from him at this point you know yeah bring back a souvenir say what kind of thing does this yeah. just so we can be aware of what's going on you know that's the first thing off the top of my head there's a couple other ones that you could use as well jeremy go ahead you were getting raised no this is i was just going to say this is and again this is this is a different format than what they're doing so it's not a criticism on them but this would be the moment in in this storyline, the the this series, the episode, whatever, where you have this creepy moment, and then you try for a joke to diffuse the tension a little bit, but it's the wrong time because you don't want to diffuse the tension at this point. If if you're doing it from a single person writing perspective, <clears throat> right? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, it, it undercuts the mood that you've just spent so much time exactly. working and, to establish. And, and even even in this, it still kind of undercuts the mood. But mm-hmm. um, it's also just, again, it's just it, it always struck me as weirdly out of character. Like, yeah. you did that just for the joke. There wasn't a, you know, a, like a reason behind it. Um, anyways, 
Uh, so the group start out again, and they uh, stealthily skirt the city uh, that outlies the fortress of, Ever- of Emberhold uh, and head straight towards it uh, at the very back wall of the cavern. About a quarter mile from the stronghold, Vex picks up a strange person standing 50 or 60 feet ahead, uh, not moving. Scanlan uh, polymorphs into a fly and buzzes over to investigate uh, and discovers that it's an illithid that's been turned into stone. Uh, he buzzes back to the group, messes with Tiberius a little bit, and transforms back, which that that's that's a Scanlan thing to do. Yes. Um, yeah. Clarota believes that the Duragar are using trained basilisks as part of their defense of the fortress. The group continues to move on. Uh, when Clarota sees the statue, he recognizes the illithid, and he hopes they can be restored, and as he has seen it done, the person does not know how. Vox Machina uh, continues for another 20 minutes. You can now see uh, the magma fall that's pouring over the top of the fortress's second story. Very, uh, very, you know, skull fortress of doom vibe mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Um, Vax and Vex move ahead uh, with the group to investigate the wall for sign of a door or uh, uh, an opening mechanism or any sort of tracks. Vax Let me actually in- take us back to that uh, illithid statue, actually, for just a second, because sure. something just Go occurred ahead. to me. All right, so uh, this is something that Matt's going to get away with being in a D&D game that you would not get away with if you were doing an actual, like, a TV show, a movie year. Because this, this is a perfect Chekhov's gun moment. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. it's like, all right, here's the statue. Oh, shit. It's something that's been turned to stone. Not only is it something that's been turned to stone, it's something that we ourselves are scared of. And something else turned it to stone. So you've already ratcheted the threat up a couple levels at this point. Now, if you go through the rest of the episode or the rest of the movie and nothing happens, that is a wasted moment and it's a useless uh, scene. Oh, yeah. So you cut that out. You know, you don't you don't have the thing there that got turned to stone if the protagonists are not eventually and hopefully fairly soon going to face the thing that turns things to stone. Yeah. Um, so so from a narrative perspective, this would be considered a very newbie mistake, um, you know, and the only thing that would motivate it would be some weird sort of like, hey, let's try and make this place scarier because massacres and blood spattered obsidian obelisks are not scary enough you know yeah. right yeah don't set right but it's like yeah so anybody well, who's and, like new to the writing craft don't set up a threat if they're not going to face that threat it's the Absolutely. same thing with well i mean it's the same thing with the obsidian area with the right the, the blood, like there's this threat here that they i don't think they ever end up facing because they don't go that route no oh they do um, no, they face oh, the thing that caused did that. They, did they face the thing that caused that? Yeah, when they when they get to the field of bone and glass, that's the thing. Oh, that you're right. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Right. okay. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, they eventually face basilisks again. It's just you know several story arcs down the line, Correct. about yeah. a year and a half later. Uh, yeah. You know, but it's nowhere around here. <laughs> and that's something where it, I don't think it's not necessarily just different in this case. I think between a D&D game and and narrative, but this is the kind of thing that would be much more okay if in some theoretical situation, I don't know if this is an actual thing, but if you were doing a live stream or, or, or something of this respect, uh, a, a narrative story where time wasn't a factor because in TV shows, and I talk about this all the time when I when I'm reviewing mm-hmm. shows. Is you only have so much real estate, 
Yeah. Everything counts. Every single moment counts. Um, particularly with with shows that have a, a, a smaller episode run. Now, if you have like cable shows and the like, tend to do like thirteen episodes. British shows do like three. Um, yeah. <laughs> but if you're doing like a network, uh, a broadcast network series where they have 22 episodes, you always, almost without exception, if you have a serial arc storyline, have one or two um, what, what they call of-the-week episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buffy was was famous for this with the Monster of the Week episodes. X-Files used to do it too a lot. X-Files yeah. did too, yeah. yeah. Where they don't tie into the overall arc, and you can well, get away with that because you can't do all plot for... 22 yeah, well, straight episodes. That, that's that's like you know that's that, that's the sitcom, you know. Yes, that's, right. that's exactly. The sitcom thing where it's mm-hmm. uh, you know none of the things are connected and and time doesn't matter because it's it's indiv- it's it's 22 individual episodes, not a series. Yeah, right. But you can be a lot more generous with uh, throwing in these sort of inconsequential things if you're not on a certain time frame. Right. And I think with with Matt's perspective here is there was every chance that they might have run into a patrol with basilisks. So he gives them the heads up, you know, and that works here. There is there is there is another uh, method of literary storytelling where this works. Um, And it's a method utilized in movies primarily where uh, you set up a event or a threat that never appears in the movie. Um, <laughs> you use it as set dressing to hook it into the sequel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so Cinematic Batman versus Universes, Superman. yo. Yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, God. It, it's it's used it almost exclusively in movies and movies <laughs> and in long-running TV shows, but, uh, like... It happens actually. Actually, a TV series where it happens a lot in is Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Where uh, I like season one of Doctor Who, they reference Cybermen like three times, but you never actually saw any of them until series two or three, I think it was. Um, well, I mean, uh, and but like, but like they 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 kept coming back to these various points where they referenced monsters that don't get seen for seasons. Yeah. Um. And and they like they use that as like a hook. It's like, oh, you might see these. You might see this. Keep coming back next week. You might see this. Yeah. Right. Um, but they do eventually get there. They they do eventually get there. But there's no But like if they had been canceled after one season, you know, you right. never would have gotten to the uh, for just just as an example, the um ah uh, the potato head the potato head people, Suntarans. Yeah, the yes. Suntarans. Right. Which were referenced in the first season, but if, if they'd be canceled in the first season, never would have gotten to them. Well, I mean, we're talking about an odd franchise there because uh, anybody who was a longtime fan had seen those things already. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because they but... had, right, the older series had had Cybermen yes. and Suntarans. And it's true. It's true. But when you're, when you're writing, remember, Correct. When, yes. when you're writing, you're writing that as a hook to the future, not a reference right. to the past, although yeah. it is a reference to the past. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It can also, go either way, yeah. Technically, yeah. Mm-hmm. backdoor pilots and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, all right. So, pass the Chekhov's gun, basilisk moment. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> uh, I forgot. Oh, uh, 
Uh, Vex notices a slight raise in the flow of magma, and above them are par on, on the parapets they see Duragar patrolling. Uh, Scanlan uses Dimension Door to transport himself and Pike to the parapet between the guards and then casts Thunder Wave, causing the plumber to around the wall. Um, and uh, Scanlan attempts to make out with Pike, who is who rejects him soundly. Um, good, good girl. Yep. Uh, the Derogar both, <laughs> both land, avoiding the magma, and Grog, raging, charges one, cleaving off his arm and then splitting down the torso. Keyleth and pushes me... the second guard into the lock. Sorry? I was going to say, let me let me go to the Pike Scanlan moment because their interaction is, especially in the the early episodes, of a recurring factor, and I love the way that the the characters play it, where it's it's not really that much of a will they won't they, you know? Right. Scanlan Scanlan is always trying, and Pike is always shutting him down, and. And it's not like an awkward sort of, oh, she'll come around eventually thing. It's pretty clear 98% of the time that she's like, yeah, you're not really, not not so much, you know? Um, and and they, they keep it very consistent. Uh, yeah. And they, they don't play it for just like, you know, uh, um, fan bait or anything like that. It's It's literally just, this is a thing that happens between these two characters. And that's all the the focus you need to have on it you know yep uh so yeah uh grog killed one and caleb pushes the second one into the lava uh as he and he gives a horrible painful scream to which she responds shh 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 <laughs> and uses wind wall to push him on to try to push him under uh, uh but instead causing him to freeze in the magma as it cools which i don't know that there's enough wind to cool magma that fast Physics aside, though, I think she did more or less the exact same thing in the previous episode, so there is an element of yeah. consistency here. Yeah. Uh, uh, magic wind, it works. Right. Um, either, way, he, either way, he gets buried as more magma pours yes. over him. And more this lava is, pours over him. This is my favorite moment of the episode. This is one of my favorite Keyleth moments with, with which her... Which, with her being one of my favorite characters, says a lot. Um, just because it's such a perfect, uh, uh, perfect emblematic moment for her um, uh, of the awkwardness, and yet, like, like there's a lot of hilarity there, as as horrific as it is. And this moment, sort of, when I was originally watching it, and I was reminded of it while I was rewatching it for this. Uh, solidified for me the pop culture connection I made at that time to this group, which was uh, I mentioned this series just a minute ago, but Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Because that is a perfect Buffy the Vampire Slayer moment if that show had been R-rated. Um, <laughs> and allowed you to show somebody getting pushed into lava and dissolving and screaming as Keyleth does a willow and is like, shush, shush, right. shush, hush, hush, it's okay. Um, and this yeah. group really, really uh, tackles that. And it will continue that way throughout throughout the series of a lot of jokes, a lot of wit. And then when it's time for the show to get serious, it a lot really, of psychological really trauma. A right? lot of psychological <laughs> trauma. 
um, a lot of memorable ongoing villains. Um, uh, a series of, you know, one big bad after the other, which is D&D in general for a lot. Of but still, mm-hmm. that was sort of my immediate connection there. And it's not surprising that that's one of the, you know, earliest shows that developed this sort of cult fan following in the Internet age. Yeah. And yeah, no, as, as you say, one, it, it's a great moment. Um, and in terms of, it definitely makes, I would say, you know, the, 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 the greatest hits list of yeah. which of Vox Machina, is, which of Vox Machina is the most psychologically scarred and, and, you know, like developmentally I damaged. Um, I didn't know you were from Boston, Jack. Yeah, I know. Right. Uh, yeah. Vax Machina. Vax Machina. <laughs> Gonna gonna pack the cat into Embahad. Um but uh yeah because you know I mean there's there's legitimate personality trauma in all yeah. of these people. Um you know and and Keyleth is one of the ones where it's like oh oh my sweet summer child it is so freaking obvious that you need therapy. Right. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, like, even My, later, um, we'll, we'll get to the part where she buries her shame literally later in this episode. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, that is not a healthy way to handle, jeez, no, My, no, God. My, my favorite part of this whole thing was what happened immediately after that. Right. Uh, Tiberius going, I noticed everything. And I sit down and turn to the next chapter of my book. <laughs> because, because, and, and honestly, that is kind of a theme this episode of, oh, here's a threat. Uh, it take, but it takes less than a round of combat to solve. And so I whoever love- whoever rolls the low initiative is like, "All right, let's do the." Oh, you don't need me. Never mind. Right. But I I, <laughs> I love that line in particular right. because it it shows again we're talking about you know this character's being a foil. But everybody else everybody else is so very very invested in what's going on. And Tiberius is like, "Ah, okay, flip flip." Right, um, right. And it's just this very casual nature that he has about every about what's going on that I find appealing in this particular instance because I I really like detached characters that are attached that are forcibly attached to a party of very empathetic or emotional characters mm-hmm. because well, that de- that detached character provides you a level of step back and observe that you don't really get when everybody is 100% committed to the emotion of the moment. Yeah, no, that's, well, going back to Buffy, that was Spike's role for a very yeah. long time, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was that was Spike. He's like, sort of, uh, what? Um, right. <laughs> but that, oh, oh, that's right. You people have, like, consciences. Well, and, 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 and <laughs> going, to, going to Doctor Who, that's the doctor's role. Yeah. Like, that's the doctor's role of, what, human drama, what, what's going on? <laughs> like... That being said, oh. Spike Spike eventually came around to the I'm psychologically traumatized as well. Um, yeah, but yeah. Like, that being said, Spike was a villain. Mm-hmm. Even when he was working with the group, it yeah. was because he had a chip in his head that if he didn't, he would have blown up. Right. This <laughs> is supposedly a protagonist. This is supposedly mm-hmm. not not a not not a protagonist, a hero. Right. A friend. Which is different, yes. Mm-hmm. And so this is the kind of thing that works really well in a D and D game. Again, I mean, I had this happen, and I did this in a recent episode of Grand Terra. Yeah, you um, did. 
<laughs> so clearly you are, you are what you hate. I are, but I would not have had Quinn do that if it was, if I was writing that in a narrative way. Right. Like to me in a situation like this, I don't yes, know, I, we, we realize that. And I, I get where you're going with it. I realize that there's a lot of reasons why it does work. And, and there's a humor factor for it. When I'm looking at Tiberius as a character, it establishes him again with all the stuff that we've seen before as somebody who thinks he's more important than thinks he's so much. I wouldn't say more important, but definitely has an arrogance about him. And look how cool I am. But then, I, when I, 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 a... I would, I as a from my perspective, I would have written this exactly how it happened. Because, because of that, because it puts Tiberius at this, at this, you know, sort of standoffish, um, oh, well, you didn't need me, so I'm going to go back to reading my book, uh, part. Uh, again, it, provide, it does provide a little bit of comedy, and that's, that's when you're writing, you do think about that. But right. also because it provides him with an opportunity then later, and, I, and, and in the D&D game, Knowing how we knowing how we know everything turns out doesn't necessarily work this way, but it provides you with a writing opportunity to later have this character be hoist upon their own petard, and you know get that comeuppance that you know provides a satisfying character change and uh, you know provides a character arc. You have to start as a shitty person before you go to being a good person. You can't just be a good person the whole way through; otherwise, you're Superman. <laughs> I agree. Um, no, I fully agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, but, so, I just came out of a Comic Con. I've had I had hours long conversations with people about my disdain for Superman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you on that. I guess I don't know. Looking at it in a more inclusive way, without being spoilerish, I don't feel like Tiberius ever hit that point. So at this moment, viewing just this episode, yeah, yes, the hope is there. Right. Looking at it as a uh, looking is, back is, on it. Remember, it's the rewatch podcast. Correct. Rewatch. I understand that. Right. <laughs> looking back at it as a whole, I have reasons for my frustration. Well, yeah, Ugh. because because I mean, as far as the characters go, Tiberius is sort of the unrealized Chekhov's gun of the cast. Yes. You know, it it would have been one thing if, okay, yeah, he's a shitty person. He doesn't help out. He thinks he's all that. He's obsessed with, you know, his own objections and that sort of thing. Actually, he does get his comeuppance. Yes. He does. He does get his comeuppance. And we'll get to that when we get to that. That's true. Okay. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Either way. And the sound right, of the thunder yeah, wave. Yeah, right. the, the sound of the thunder wave and the horrible <laughs> screams of pain have alerted all the other guards as Pike and Scanlan hear footsteps approaching them. Scanlan dimension doors again, and he and Pike are transported back to the room. Keyleth uses the wall of stone uh, uh, perpendicular to the wall above where they suspect the trap door. A, a trap door is. Um, I, my, I seem to have skipped over the trap door somewhere along my description. Uh, they they had mentioned that there was the lava flow coming down the side of the building kind of yeah. bulged out at one point, and they that's were right. like, "Oh, there's okay, a, that's probably a, where the that's probably where this secret door, door we've heard about." Yeah, is. There's, there's, a, there's a trap door in the wall behind the lava flow. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, yeah, I, I skipped for some reason that wasn't made clear. <laughs> in in, in, like, in these notes, <laughs> yeah, um, that may not have been made clear in the episode, but uh, yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah, the cast wall stone perpendicular to the wall above where they suspect the trap door is. The lava flow is bit away from the wall, and Vox Vagina can now see a stone door hidden beneath it. The door appears to have no handle. Uh, Vax and Tiberius check for a way to open the door. While they do so, two Duragar appear on the parapet. Vex takes a pair of shots, one with her blazing bowstring, and Percy takes shots with bad news. Vex's target is killed. The door is not magical, but there is a contraption that opens it from the inside. Vax manages to hook a chain through the gap in the door. Grog grabs the chain, Pike grabs on the back of Grog, and they both pull. As they pull, they hear the grinding of the chain as it rises. It is slightly blocked by the wall of stone, but the space is big enough for them to squeeze in. Using spiritual weapon, Pike attempts to lasso the, Dur- the Duragar guard, but catches the wall instead. Scanlan conjures his unseen servant behind the Duragar to push him off the wall. Uh, it gives the Duragar a hefty slap. Confused, the Duragar readies a crossbow. Uh, I believe it, it, uh, it didn't make a... It, I, if I recall correctly, mechanically, it either can't or didn't make a good enough athletics check to push him off the wall. Uh, unseen servant? Yeah. Unseen servant has literally no combat capabilities according That's to the right. rules. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You li- you you can't. It's it's in the spell description. That's right. This yeah, thing yeah. cannot help you in a fight. It yep. cannot do it. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> right. you summon a con because you summon an unseen servant and try to push out the wall. It slaps it and nothing. Right, slaps. yeah. It, it would be like trying to use mage hand in a fight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. I mean, unless you're an arcane trickster using mage hand to disarm a trap in the middle of the fight, but you know. Right, right. Um, but I'm talking about yeah. But even an arcane yeah. trickster can't use mage hand to hurt somebody else directly. No. Unless it's triggering a trap, but... Right. Uh, either way. Oh, I see um, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, are, there are ways around things. Mm-hmm. Uh, confused... Sorry, I just got that. The, the Durgar already just crossbow. Vex attacks and hits the Durgar targets Vex, but misses. Percy blows the Durgar's head off. So that's point number two for the red mist of this episode um, this is yeah there there is some there is some amazing violence in this episode and it's not something that we've actually <clears throat> seen before um and that can be jarring for for an audience if they're not used to that mm-hmm. um but you know i mean we we've had the 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 aftermath of the massacre we now we have literally percy just discorporating somebody's head with a bullet um yeah, oh. there's there's some there's some heavy violence in in this episode that would definitely get you a PG thirteen rating if not higher. Uh, the lava <laughs> made it higher rating already. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And the the, the remember the, remember Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes, the lava <laughs> would not necessarily get you an R rating. I would point out Revenge of the Sith PG thirteen. Heads exploding into blood. On the other hand, <laughs> generally that's an R. <laughs> I mean, Re- Revenge of the Sith. He didn't melt entirely into the lava, so yeah. there there are degrees of lava being rated. <laughs> Various degrees of lava rating. Various degrees of lava rating. <laughs> so they they make it, they all make it through the door and they take a break. Uh. After they come back from the break, they find themselves in a cramped. They find themselves cramped into a tiny storage room with a single door in one direction, aside from the door they just came into, uh, and steps leading up into another. Vax sniffs the door and picks its intricate lock. Uh, the door swings open into a hallway. Um, there's some fart shenanigans 
and some prestidigitation. Um, Vax steps out of the hallway, looks around, hears footsteps above, and then heads down, and then heads down some stairs, uh, completely ignoring the stairs leading upwards. Um, <laughs> you know, which is, is you know, it's a as a, from a writer's perspective, I feel like doors locked, check stairs first, but that's also me from an adventuring perspective as well. Right. Um, door is locked, pretty you certain think? nothing's coming through it, go up the stairs. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, that, that's, that's not, a, there's nothing narratively wrong with that, it's just, that's me, me in particular going, huh? Um, down the stairs is a room guarded by two Duragar. Moaning sounds come from inside the room, and the guard yells, shut up in there. Uh, Vex uh, begins to get worried at uh, her her brother and follow and leaves the storage room. The rest of them following. Um, uh, <laughs> which and then we have probably my favorite bit of dialogue of the night of <laughs> uh, Tiberius using the earrings of Whisper, uh, asking Vax, "What are you doing?" And Vax's response: "I'm killing someone. Hold, please." Right. Which is. A bit of again, where we're kind of getting weird shades of character with Vax, where he's a good guy, that he's a bad guy, that he's a morbid guy, that he's not a morbid guy, and it like he he's kind of all over the place these first few series of episodes, um, which gets an explanation later on, but but at, at, in the moment it's kind of weird how he jumps back and forth between moral and it immoral. is a little jarring, yeah. Um, again, going back to the interrogation of the Duragar bit, and mm-hmm. like it's it's like they just when it it's it's an issue that many writers suffer from, where characters become what they need to become for the scene to progress. Right. Um, yep. and this this is this this happens in television, movies, video games, books, everywhere. Uh, people will. Write a character with a really good personality, a really interesting personality, and they will ignore key aspects of that personality so long as it fits the plot. Right. I don't think that it's necessarily – here's the thing, though. It's not – in most of these instances, I find, it's not ignoring the personalities or it's not ignoring the morality. It is that morality and those reasons not being explained well. Well, yeah, no. Well, I'm, I'm when, referencing I'm referencing the phenomenon in other media, right now. Well, no, in other media too. Like a lot of the time, you look at how characters are written, and they do things that make absolutely they seem to make absolutely no sense against that character's moral code, and then you talk to the writers who who are involved, or the actors who are playing the characters, or or whatever the case may be. And they can fully explain why that happened. And once they do, it makes complete sense from a certain point of view. It's also the fact that morality is such an interpretable thing. But still, the problem is that is not well – it's usually not well explained within the arc or it takes a while for that explanation to come. So when it happens, it seems really uh, incongruous. But Mm – I'm referring more to the event that happens in um, video games where, say, Indiana Jones suddenly picks up a submachine gun and guns down a bunch of Nazis. Oh, well, yeah, that's just dumb. 
things like that, <laughs> which happen all the time. Right. Um, I'm not. I'm not necessarily talking about the more explainable one, which th- this would fall under what you were describing, where it's there are there's certain motivation. Uh, there certainly is a reason why Vax is behaving this way. It's just that we don't know it yet. Right. Um, but the other side of that coin is you have an intricate and dramatic character like Nathan Drake, for example, um, who has this this driving uh, urge to be a famous treasure hunter and to to find ancient artifacts, ancient civilizations, and to prove his worth to the world, and then turn around and massacre a thousand guys in a day. Um like while all while calling them the bad guys like you know there's there's this that is a very real thing that happens um in 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 writing a lot and needs to stop <laughs> um but yeah so so here we have vax uh, i'm killing someone hoping which is a hilarious line but also just for me is a little back and forth with, with vax um who then immediately changes his mind anyways and goes and gets his sister. Uh, first, pulling Vex, he pulls Vex down. As they pull Vex down, they hear more footsteps above, and Keyleth grants Vex guidance. Vax throws two of his daggers, and Vex shoots two arrows, one each at each Duragar. The first Duragar is killed instantly, but the second one is able to shrug off some of the poison to the Dagger of Venom and still stands. A second barrage of daggers and arrows hits him, and his, and his body stomps against the door. Vex contacts the others with her, using her earring of Whisper. Uh, indicating that they seem to found the prison cells and they get, tell them to get down there. They all rush down the stairs, and, uh, wincing at the clank of Pike's armor. They look in an open door and see a series of dungeon cells. Uh, Vex, Vax calls out for Lady Kima. There are a number of dwarven captives in poor health. Pike heals them. They require nourishment and fresh air. Tiberius and Keyleth administer fresh water. They hear footsteps coming from the stairway. Grog stands on the bottom. Vax and Vex flank the door. Keyleth hides in a cell under a decomposing body. Uh, the others prepare for a fight, but eventually the footsteps fade away. Vax unlocks the second door and he pushes it open. A large, fast-moving blade descends towards his head. Vax dodges most of the damage and the blade embeds itself in the door. A scarred Duragar in black leather tunic with a hood pulls the great axe back with a grin. Uh, Vex yells, hold. Vax throws a serpent bell at the Duragar, who ducks, slapping it away and kicks the door closed. Tiberius casts stone skin on himself. Percy moves into the corridor and shoots the door with his pepper box, and it swings open slightly. Vax yells, "Your turn, Grog!" as he yanks the door open. As he yanks open the door, the door backs up, and the room's interior is revealed: a torture chamber, including rack, which is occupied. "You are so fucked, dwarf." Vax continues. Tiberius moves into the corridor. Uh, uh, I like saying, "I like where this is going, Vax." You can't see what's happening. And so he says, I encourage violence. Which is probably Tiberius's most quotable quote, possibly of the entire game. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, no, and, and, and this, this whole sequence is, is interesting um, because I think that a very uh, <clears throat> wise choice was made here in that nine times out of ten, unless the entire episode or movie is about it hostage negotiations are usually not very interesting because there's just lots of waiting around and you know people trying to come up with different reasons why the hostage holder should let the hostages go um and it could have very easily if matt had 
willed it gone that way. You know, the dwarf just holds a knife to the prisoner's throat and says, back the fuck away, don't come in here or I'll kill whoever this is. But that would, I think, have been a poor narrative decision. I think he made a much wiser narrative decision in saying, okay, and whoever this, you know, jailer, torturer person is, decides to actually engage the threat and gives well, it a much more dynamic atmosphere, I think. It, it's also a thing in fantasy settings, uh, hostage negotiation is even trickier for the hostage taker because we live in a world where, you know, we're, we're, we're in a world, we inhabit a world where healing spells exist. Right. Um, and, like, and this has happened, what does that, this happened with me before in campaigns where I've, I've made decisions based on the fact that I know we have healing spells or resurrection spells. Right. Um, that maybe seem strange at the time, but like, like for instance, you know, the guy has a knife to a girl's throat, and I'm like, well, he's not gonna, he's either he's going to capture all of us and torture all of us, or he's gonna stab that girl. We kill him, and I heal the girl because I'm the cleric. Right. So I'm like, okay, well, the best option here to save a life is to step forward and smash this guy in the face with a hammer. Right. Yeah, he stabs the girl in the throat. Yeah, she starts bleeding out, but I reach down and touch her, and she's back to full. Like so, it, it's it's one of those things where practicality often ruins hostage negotiations in the first place. Totally in these yeah. settings. Totally can. <laughs> um. So, uh, Keyleth, wild shapes into a saber-toothed tiger, carrying the dead body she was hiding beneath in her mouth. Uh, as she bites down on the body, it stirs briefly and then falls limp again, as the body was not actually dead until now. <laughs> Keyleth moves into the hallway. That's gonna come uh, back and 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 hurt later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> emotional scarring. Yep. Um, well, and so much of her emotional scarring is brought up in this episode too. Like all the way back when we were, you know, the 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 lava thing. It's one of the other great great moments in there. Is, is uh, Vex bringing up her killing a kid and the pre-stream stuff? Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> which it, again is is a laugh line, a really really morbid laugh line. But that's exactly my kind of laugh. Well, line. And, it's, and, it's, right. and it's it's one of those things where it also indicates how kind of indicative of the party Vox Machina acts and then thinks. Yeah, because involuntary manslaughter is kind of Keyleth's uh, bread and butter. Yeah, where it's like it's like oh, I'm going to do something cool. It's going to be awesome, and then you didn't think about the potential ramifications of that whole thing. Or investigate further into the, what you were trying to do that was awesome, and you just killed a person. Right, and now there's oh. innocent bystanders that are dead. <laughs> well done. Yeah, well done, everybody. Golf clap, golf clap. <laughs> High marks all um, around. Yeah, that, that's kind of Vox Machina's mo is collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Vex smacks Grog in the ass and go get him. Grog rushes to the Durgar, lifts him up, and throws him into a shiny pointy hook. Uh, with burning rage in his eyes, the Durgar, pinned with a hook through his chest, tries to grab Grog and pull him in for a headbutt, but Grog grabs the Durgar's jar, jaw, rips it off, and starts pummeling him in the face with the jaw in his fist until the head caves in. And we've reached number three on the gratuitous violence scale. Number four, number four. This episode of Critical Role brought to you by Quentin Tarantino. Yes. Right. Um, they can now see that the figure strapped to the rack is Lady Kima. She's been there a while and suffered eventually, but there's still a fight in her. Percy disables the rack and shoots her chains off. Guns as master key number two. Yep. Um, Scanlan sings a healing song for her, and she jumps, she jumps onto the table, 
Her hand's still bound and pulls herself free of the restraints with a show of strength. She greedily takes the water that Tiberius offers and dons the studded leather armor Grog offers to the bag of holding. Seeing she's still sore, Pike gives her some more healing. Kima asks for Pike's mace, which she reluctantly, which she reluctantly relinquishes, and Kima begins to smash it into the body of her torturer again and again and again, uh, showing us exactly what kind of paladin Lady Kima Vord is. Yep. Quentin Tarantino moment number five. Okay. Yep. Keep going. <laughs> uh, with, it's noted that she has anger, frustration, and joy in her eyes as she's bashing this corpse. Yep. Uh, she then gives it back to Pike, who burns the blood off. As she gives it back to Pike, she burns the blood off it with radiant energy, saying, thank you, I needed that. Um, Pike responds, you're very welcome. I'm sorry, I questioned you. With a little bit of uh, sort of timid uh, in her voice, and then Grog in awe goes, that was amazing. We know how Grog, we know where Grog stands on the Yes. Uh, Kima convinces Vox Machina to help her retrieve her belongings, they begin he- heading up to the vault. Grog throws her a greatsword, which she catches easily despite her diminutive stature. Before they leave, Vex tells the remaining dwarves in the cells about the secret exit. At the bottom of the stair, Kima spies Clarota at the top and goes for her weapon. Tiberius interposes his mage hand between the two, which wouldn't actually stop anything. Um, because Mage Hand is ethereal and invisible, you see. Uh, and and tries to explain that they are allies, that they share a common purpose. Kima does not trust Clarota and has issues with his people. There's a heated discussion between the three parties as both Kima and Scanlan issue ultimatums. Uh, Kima backs down, but it's an uneasy truce. Uh, Kima to Clarota. One single misstep, and I will not hesitate to carve that head from your body in the name of Bahamut. Clarota back. And please understand, if you ever intend to try to cut my life short, I will also not hesitate to bore that beautiful mind from your skull. Uh, Kima to Vox Machina, I pray that you're right, and I pray that this entity is telling the truth, because if it's not, none of us are making it out of here alive. Uh, Kima sends the stairway, Clarota backs up, arcane energy forming in his hands just in case. Kima uses the sword to push him aside. Clarota and the rest of the group follow, except Pike, who quickly runs back to the torture chamber to pick up some items. And that was this the end a, of the episode. Yeah, and one of those perfect moments of, you know, all right, you're, the, the, the group is now confronted with, uh, you know, a fork in the road, uh, ethically speaking, in a sense. You know, you've got Clarota, who they've been traveling with for a few days now and have established this tenuous alliance with. And then they've got Kima, who is literally the reason they're down here. She is their objective. Find this person, bring them back. Um, and this is going to be, this, this is a great use of potential conflict that is not only abstract, but also tangible now per, with, with, with these two actual individuals that they can interact with personifying the two choices they have in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are... Matt does a great job of differentiating the two. There is an inherent conflict here. Um, this is not simply just, oh, I don't know this person, I don't like them, but they have very, very different uh, moral, ethical, and philosophical stances, and neither one of them, Clarota or Kima, is going to back down from that very easily. So the group is either going to have to spend an inordinate amount of energy trying to reconcile these two, or eventually make a choice between them. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I completely lost what I was about to say. Um, sorry. No. Yeah. It's it's a very uh, um, sort of a classic, actually. A uh, bit of bit of storytelling there with the with oh yeah, two, very, you know very opposing much. sides. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, that happens in Shakespeare plays. It happens in uh, uh, actually, actually, famously, it happened in Romeo and Juliet, yep. where you know you have uh, uh, the prince and Mercutio stuck in the middle of this fight between the Capulets and the um, Montague. Montagues, uh, and you know, uh, unable to reconcile. Obviously, everyone dies, but right. um, there's this, this, this that that. You you have to make a choice. You cannot sit on the fence. There is going to be one way or the other. Mentality is played a lot in in modern in, in, in modern storytelling and in classic storytelling, um, mostly because it makes you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. We as a, we as a people want to find the compromise societally, uh, as we are now. We want to find the compromise where everybody is happy and everybody gets what they want. And this is the uh, this is the this is the point where that can't happen, mm-hmm. and it makes you uncomfortable. And by na- by its nature, anything that makes you uncomfortable means you're invested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and more, because, and more but, to the point, it's uh, it's it's character. You have two very extreme points of view, and the character is stuck in the middle. So it's pushing them to make that particular choice, which is very telling as to it's a test of the characters. It's a crucible of sorts, yeah. Um, <clears throat> which is ultimately, uh, at least for me, a lot of what makes serial storytelling interesting is you take these characters, you start to like these characters, you fall in love with the characters, and then when they're put in a situation like this, which way are they going to go? That's the kind yeah. of thing that leaves me on the end of my, at the uh, edge of my seat. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, but yeah, so that was. Uh, is there anything else the two of you want to touch on before we wrap up? No, that's about it for me, man. Nope. nope. Yeah this this was a very this was a Quentin Tarantino episode most yes. certainly. <laughs> um, but it, it advanced, which you know that was our big issue with the previous episode was that it was circular literally mm-hmm. um and but this one you know it advanced they they actually they've achieved their objective of rescuing lady kima and now they need to finish their objective of clearing out kavarn yep um but uh we we have some progress we've reached a checkpoint as it were um and we look forward to seeing what happens in episode seven uh episode seven the throne room so, yeah, we have been Final Show Films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out on our website at FinalShowFilms.com. You can also check us out on our Patreon page at Patreon.com slash Films. And you can check us out on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Final Show Films. Um, and you can find us at 411mania.com. Jeremy, please give us a spiel. 411mania.com. We are a pop culture uh, site for the fanboys, fangirls fan- of all ages. Uh, we cover movies, TV, uh, comics, uh, wrestling, mixed martial arts, music, games, and have I forgotten anything? I think the D&D podcast stuff I mean, now. 
Us, yeah. <laughs> you forgot us. Uh, D&D, games. D&D and Sundry, uh, gaming D- podcasts in general. We're not all D&D. We're just mostly D&D for now. Um, but yeah. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on our Patreon page at Patreon.com. We appreciate all of our patrons, especially our $25 supporters, Chris Comfort and Tom. Uh, if you'd like to support us financially, but you don't want to do a monthly payment, you can also do a single one-time payment uh, on our website. There's a PayPal Donate Now button. Click that. We appreciate that. We appreciate you for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.